Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly podcast featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined as always by Bill Galston of Brookings, Damon Linker of The Week, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and our special guest this week is Jane Coaston of Vox. So welcome one and all. We are recording this podcast as I guess most everybody would expect um, from our various uh, homes rather than in an office. And um, we are all observing the uh, quarantine requirements. So I'd like to um, just begin with a little status check. You know, when we got online to do this with, we're using um, a program called Zencaster, which um, has a feature where it it measures your computer's uh, viability for this for this process and for the memory requirements and it has something called a health check, <laughs> and uh, we, we were all getting excited, especially Damon, saying we had passed the health check, <laughs> but uh, alas, it was just our computers, uh, not our own biology that uh, that passed. But uh, but I, I thought we'd begin by just checking in and seeing how everybody's doing in their own neighborhoods. Um, and if there's anything to report, I'll start. Um, my day began with notice on the um, Nextdoor website, which is the little community group, um, that uh, the local hospital was in dire need of face masks that the nurses were operating without them, which is really kind of mind-boggling and hard to believe. It's only March 19th. The the epidemic is only in its beginning stages, and yet apparently they've already run out of face masks. So they put out an APB asking if people had some, and and they said if anybody's been hoarding, now might be a time to hand them over. And uh, as a matter of fact, we have some face masks Ours are not from this crisis. Ours are left over, believe it or not, from the post 9-11 period when I went out and bought a bunch of face masks thinking that maybe it might be necessary. And so I pulled them out of the basement and offered them up um, to uh, to the local hospital uh, because even though I'm sure they're expired, uh, it's better than nothing. Jane, what about you? And Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I, uh, I live in the Shaw neighborhood of Washington, D.C. Um, we are currently observing quarantine procedures while also uh, having our new batch of foster puppies. Um, we have two, we have a, a lab, two lab Pyrenees mixed puppies who are currently oh. deep asleep um, <laughs> because it's, it's 2 p.m. on a Thursday. What else would you be doing? Um, and it's been interesting because uh my main jaunts outside have just been to go for runs, which appears to be the last thing that you can do. Yeah. Uh, it has been, it's been quite sobering, especially because I have so many friends who are in, you know, the service industry or are working at restaurants and the impact that that has had, especially I think for many people living in urban environments has been so deeply felt. Um, I think that it'll be interesting to see how, you know, I was just looking at a map of the rate of uh, positive coronavirus tests across the country. And obviously, you know, the spikes are in New York and other big areas, um, Seattle, specifically California, Los Angeles, San Francisco. But it'll be interesting to see how much of that impact is felt unequally um, kind of across the spectrum, especially for people who are in the service industry. You know, if you work at a grocery store, you know, you can't, you know, no one is going to tell you to, you know, to shelter in place because you can't. And for many people that is, you know, their, their main source of income. And so it's a a very unequal experience and also, you know, very strange, I think. Um, uh, Though I, I, I has been comforting, actually, I've been comparing this, it feels kind of like we're all preparing or enduring a very bad snowstorm, but you can't see it. And it has been comforting to go outside and to see other people who are, you know, going for walks, going for runs, trying to maintain social distancing. But it's also just, it's a very strange experience. There's nothing to which I can compare it that I've endured in my lifetime. You know, I was a freshman in high school. It was actually my second week of high school when 9-11 happened. A second week of my freshman year when 9-11 happened. 
And the only comparison I can come up with is the just abject, what do we do now? Like, what happens now? Is there a thing? But this seems to be much more slow movie. It It's really a real anomaly in my life, I think. Yeah, oh, I think that's true of all of us. Damon, um, how do you compare it, uh, just out of curiosity? I mean, say whatever you want, but um, how would you compare it to the 9-11 experience? Well, kind of from the inside, there are definitely similarities, um, kind of psychologically or emotionally. Uh, I was working actually at First Things Magazine at the time and commuting in to uh, 20th Street and 5th Avenue every day from Southern Connecticut on Metro North at that time. And I saw the, the, the first plane fly, it flew right over my head as it was on its way to the trade center. And that was obviously very shocking. Uh, and to be there that day, only two miles from, uh, from ground zero. And then the, the coming weeks afterwards were eerie and scary. You know, we had the uh, now long forgotten uh, anthrax scare that followed immediately on the attacks. And so it seemed as if media outlets were also under a kind of ongoing terrorist attack. And then the pictures of missing loved ones up all over the city and then soldiers in Grand Central Station uh, holding machine guns. I mean, it was it felt like you were in a kind of slow motion nightmare. Also, uh, military jets circling overhead for a few weeks afterwards. And the present moment feels a little bit like that, a sort of like shock. Lots of things you take for granted uh, changed and ordinary life feeling scary in a way that it didn't used to. But in other ways, it's quite different, of course, because I was continuing to go to work. I mean, I think I took a day or two off uh, right after 9-11, but then I was back to work. We were putting out a magazine and, and meeting and talking and I was commuting. Uh, whereas now everything has just shut down. It's like the entire world has kind of gone into a stupor. And that is, that's disorienting, uh, you know, hunkering down here with my family. I have two kids, one in high school, one in middle school. Both of them are here on their computers trying to learn something while I work and my wife works and we kind of go out for our little expeditions to the grocery store to get supplies and then bring them back and wash ferociously our hands. And it's, um, it, it it is so in that respect i guess i would just summarize by saying yeah it, it's quite similar but also uh different in its own way and and in some ways a little unnerving because uh you know at least at the immediate aftermath of 9-11 i th thought there was an enemy <laughs> that we could actually target and do something about whereas this is this is more amorphous the end point is a little vague um, uh, but you know, I don't know, I guess I could imagine pushing against that and seeing deeper continuities in that respect as well, especially given how the war on terror ended up unfolding with a whole lot of uncertainty. Hey, Linda, um, Damon mentioned going to this grocery store. Um, I, I find that a little, uh, unnerving, <laughs> the fact that the bare shelves, the, the panic buying, the hoarding, um, and the real genuine worry, you know, I don't even want to sit here and finger wag at people who are hoarding because who knows what the future holds? It's totally unclear. Um, the, the entire economy could be shutting down and that might include supermarkets. Well, um, one of the things I'm thankful for is that I moved from Potomac where I was separated uh, from my neighbors a great distance and where getting to the grocery store was quite a distance and everything was uh, much less convenient. I now live in Silver Spring and I'm literally a block away from my grocery store, from my pharmacy. Uh, so I can actually walk if I need to. I will tell you, I have not quite experienced that. Um, I did stock up at Costco uh, a couple of weeks ago, got the necessary paper products, um, did some, you know, extra buying of, of meat and froze it and, you know, did that sort of thing to be prepared. But I haven't, um, I haven't seen the empty shelves probably because I haven't been out. Um, what I'm finding is that this isn't all that 
abnormal for me. And maybe that says a great deal about me and my rather reclusive life. I have worked at home for many years. So getting up in the morning, fixing my coffee and, you know, then coming upstairs and sitting down at my desk and going about my work is what I usually do. I did not spend a lot of time going out before. I'm spending even less now. The one thing I have to remind myself to do is to get out and walk. And like Jane, I have a new puppy. And so I take her on walks that gets me out in the fresh air. Um, I live with my husband and my adult granddaughter who uh, lives in an apartment in my basement. So it's just the three of us. And she's been extremely helpful chipping in and going to the grocery store, going to the pharmacy. But we're limiting um, even her trips out. I don't want her going out more than once or twice a week if if it can be avoided. Because I think uh, really the only thing that is going to stop this is that social distancing we keep hearing about. And if people do, in fact, hunker down, uh, it's very painful. It's uh, certainly financially painful. Uh, I unfortunately looked at my uh, savings and my uh, stock portfolio, which I have to live on because I'm uh, in facing retirement uh, very soon. Um, and that was very depressing. But um, other than, you know, the immediate, and I think it'll last for a while, financial impacts, things haven't changed all much, all that much in my life. And knock wood, let's hope that that continues for the m- next month or two months and we'll all get through this. The question is, in what shape will we be after we get through this? Uh, My fear is that unless we act very quickly along the health front and the economic front, A, we're going to lose a lot more lives than we have to, and B, we're going to lose a lot more jobs and businesses that we have to. I think we have to treat this as a national emergency. and act as though time is of the essence, which it is. If we do, I think we'll get through it a lot faster than if we if we try to muddle through, uh, which works in ordinary circumstances, but is, I think, a disastrous misjudgment in our current circumstances. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, th- just on the subject of uh, children uh, for a second, l- one other observation from me, and that is, um, so I live in Arlington. Um, it's a it's a crowded place, you know, where our, the houses are fairly close together. There are a lot of children in this area, but what's been fascinating to me during this crisis is that I see so many more children around now than I ever normally see. And I'm always out and about. I'm always walking my dog. And well, but so the kids, it's not just that the kids are in school during the day, daylight hours. They're also, I'm concluding, most of them must be in after school activities also, and not just out playing stickball and so forth as we did when we were kids, because their parents are all working. And so, you know, the kids must be, um, they, they must be sort of scheduled to, you know, for most of, uh, most of the time and now they're unscheduled. And so they're out and about and it's kind of a dramatic difference. Amazing. Wow. That's, that's really interesting, Mona, because I'm seeing exactly the opposite. I also live, you know, in a neighborhood with lots of children. And on a normal weekend, I hear them out in their backyard. I see them in the front yard. They're playing together. I'm not seeing any of that. I don't know if, if I've got a particularly paranoid oh, block or what. I guess it can go. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, one of the, one of my neighbors, I think, is in public health. So maybe she's <laughs> notified everybody to keep the kids indoors. Uh, but I'm not seeing kids out. Uh, when I go out for walks, I am seeing uh, individuals out walking dogs, uh, you know, and we wave at each other uh, from a distance. But I, I'm not seeing a whole lot of kids out. I do have grandkids, and I know that it is challenging. Um, my uh, middle son, uh, Pablo, has got his kids at home, and trying to keep them doing their lessons and keep them occupied is a challenge. Uh, my oldest son has older children, and therefore it's a little easier uh, with them. But uh, I do, I do really sympathize with parents 
who are not, as, as Bill said, this is not going to be days. It's not going to be weeks. This is probably going to be months. I, I would be very surprised if school systems go back uh, into normal uh, production or normal uh, attendance be, uh, before the end of the school year. I really would. So this, uh, this is arguably much more severe in terms of the consequences for our economy and our society than 9-11 was, or even than the financial crisis of 2007-2008 was. Um, those, were, um, those were discrete events. Um, of course, they had huge, huge effects, but this is the complete shutdown of economic activity, the likes of which we just have not seen, and there's nothing to compare it to. Um, you know, the, the idea that, that a, a stimulus, uh, we talked about this actually on one of our previous podcasts, but, you know, the idea that cutting interest rates by half a point, uh, or, or that, uh, a stimulus plan, um, could, solve this um, seems to me to be futile uh, because if people aren't able to leave their homes and go out and do ec- economic activities, um, there really isn't much to stimulate. Um, the, the one thing you can do is alleviate immediate suffering. And I'm not against that. I think, you know, sending what they're now calling Romney bucks, but sending people money um, might be a good idea. Anybody want to jump in on the Romney bucks uh, matter? Well, I think it's fascinating that you're hearing from Mitt, you know, Senator Mitt. Actually, um, Bill, uh, Jane's going now. You, we'll come to you next. Um, I'm fascinated by how Senators Mitt Romney, ha- I'm fascinated by how Senators Mitt Romney and Tom Cotton and a few others in Congress are, one, very supportive of just direct cash payments to taxpayers. But two, you know, Tom Cotton is suggesting um, asking landlords to forbear on rent payments for three months. Uh, you're hearing a host of conservatives, you know, typically, quote unquote, small government conservatives um, and populist conservatives alike advocating for policies that kind of recognize or newly recognize the power of the federal government. And I think it's a real inflection point in some ways for movement conservatism, because um, there was a piece in the American conservative earlier this week that essentially made the point that, you know, movement conservatism and pandemics can't exist at the same time. And you see that a lot with kind of how some of the more Trump leading conservatives essentially just pretend that this was all a hoax to, you know, to allow the government to get more power over your lives, but it's not a hoax. And the best way to deal with a pandemic is for the government to take really strong top-down action. And so I think that that, you know, the mitt bucks, um, you know, I've, there's been a lot of research on how that might work or what that might look like or whether or not even a thousand dollars a month is too little. But it is fascinating to see that coming from people, you know, if if anyone you know remembers the halcyon days of 2010, 2011, it's interesting to see those arguments being made by some of those same people. Uh, well, you can um, you can believe that in an emergency there is nothing there's no alternative to the government taking some stopgap measures to prevent vast uh vast misery um and believing that that ought to be the policy during normal times right linda absolutely that that is exactly correct and i think a couple of weeks ago i suggested you know there was less unemployment of course that's not going to be true soon but that money should perhaps be diverted in a way to make sure that we allow people who cannot afford to miss a paycheck uh, to be able to get some sort of support when they have uh, when they get sick because we don't want them out there infecting people. But I think we really are underestimating the possible long-term consequences of what this is going to mean for our economy. The retail industry was already in dire trouble before this crisis began. People had changed their habits, weren't going into uh, stores anymore. They were buying online. And um, and that was really hurting a lot of uh, both big and small retail establishments. Shutdowns like this are going to basically put out of business many small businesses, but it may also force into bankruptcy uh, big corporations as well. The other thing is, you know, corporate America 
thrives on debt. Um, I, I sit on a corporate board. Uh, I've gone through this in the past in the 2008 crisis when I was on the board of Pilgrim's Pride, which was a large chicken uh, producer. Once uh, stock prices start to fall, companies that have uh, rotating debt, for example, there are always covenants uh, in those debt documents that uh, relate to uh, you know, your share price, that you have to have a certain amount of capital, which is what share price really represents, uh, in order to satisfy the covenants in your debt. So there are a lot of companies uh, that even seem healthy um, and have been functioning just fine, but are going to run up against those debt covenants. So I think this does require a very, very sober uh, look, and they need to get the best minds in the country pulled in to try to talk about this. And I don't have the confidence that they're doing that. I get less confidence almost every day when I watch uh, the press conference uh, with now President Trump deciding that he's got to be center stage. Uh, you just don't have the sense, uh, apart from you know some of the medical uh, people who are represented, like Dr. Fauci, that they necessarily are pulling together uh, the right people to try to come up with federal solutions to some of the problems we're going to face. And these these problems could end up not just seeing us seeing a recession, but if you have 20% unemployment, if you have businesses failing uh, right and left, uh, you could be looking much more like what we saw, you know, in the worldwide Great Depression in the 1930s. Yep. Bill, uh, our Secretary of Commerce uh, about a month ago said that the the uh, virus might be great because it would bring jobs to the U.S. at the expense of China. <laughs> uh, every once in a while, Mr. Ross wakes up just long enough to say something really stupid. Uh, this uh, this health crisis is triggering an economic crisis that is likely in the short term, and I hope it's just in the short term, uh, to produce a lot more job destruction than job creation. Uh, in fairness, there is an issue as to whether we can have elaborate supply chains, including multiple countries, including China, uh, whose efficient, uninterrupted, and joint operation is necessary in order to produce uh, products, in, especially in the healthcare se sector, which are essential to the well-being of the American people. I do think we have to rethink the question of national versus international production in, in those areas, and uh, it may involve somewhat higher prices for those products in the name of secure access to them in moments of crisis. Right, right. Well put. But uh, okay, so Damon, I'd like to hear you on this. I, my my worry about the Andrew Ross Sorkin uh about the Andrew Ross Sorkin idea um is that it would freeze things in place that you know the existing companies that we have would be the ones we would be stuck with even as conditions are so radically different that it might actually require the economy to change and adapt. I mean, it might be that we're just going to need a whole, you know, many, many more health workers or many more grocery checkout clerks or van drivers or, or things like that. And, and um, we want, to, we want the economy to be able to be flexible enough to respond. Right. Yes, that's true. Um, I, I do wonder though about, um, I mean, these are these are kind of very sh small, short window shocks to the economy, and you don't want the economy to respond to something that hopefully, fingers crossed, within a year will have passed, and so the economy then uh, you know gets distorted in one direction because of the needs of this moment, and then we kind of snap back to the old normal, and then you have all kinds of slack and tightness in, in areas that. Uh, that create its own their own instability. So I would be a little concerned about that. Although I agree with you that 
the uh, the Sorkin idea of uh, simply kind of freezing the the present economy through outlays by the government uh, it, it sounds incredibly complicated. I mean, talk about the government picking winners and losers. Uh, th- that that could be have its own traps in it. Like for I mean, for instance, this week I heard Amazon wants to hire a hundred thousand new workers. Well, no right. kidding, because it's the only functional retail outlet that can get people things. So that's not surprising. That probably was the direction we were going at a much slower pace with the slow motion collapse of brick and mortar retail outlets and replacement by deliveries, not only by Amazon, but by uh, Walmart and others. Uh, That could be vastly accelerated by this process. Same with the, the decline of movie theaters replaced by Netflix and other streaming services in the home. You now see Hollywood fast tracking major theatrical releases to home streaming. Streaming. If this does go on for six to nine months, uh, you know, a lot of those trends that we were we were going in the direction of anyway could end up uh, getting here much quicker than we would have expected. But they're not dramatic uh, changes from the way we were going anyway. So it could accelerate a lot of these things. And I'm a little hesitant to imagine the government uh, intervening in a way that would halt them. So I guess I, in the end, I'm a little bit more inclined to like the idea of giving people short-term infusion of cash to get them through this demand-driven collapse that we're going through um, in the expectation that as soon as things rebound, that will cease, that we're not going to be having, we're not instituting a long-term permanent UBI program of the kind that Andrew Yang favors, which uh, I I don't favor for all kinds of reasons. Yeah, I I tend to agree with you, Damon. Um, I I was also struck by something that circulated um, on Twitter yesterday when the discussion turned to giving people $1,000 and and the topic came up, yes, but what about people who don't need $1,000? What about, you know, should we try to find a way not to give it to people who don't need it? And so Josh Barrow of New York Magazine said, uh, well, it'd be really complicated to have the Treasury try to figure out who needs it and who doesn't need it better to have the people who don't need it just immediately go ahead and donate that money to those who do, either by buying gift certificates at their favorite businesses or by just outright cash transfers to people that they know are in need, which is a really nice appealing idea, but I'm not sure it would actually uh, work at scale. But um, that's... Yeah, I saw that same exchange and I I share um, a lot of, I mean, my initial instinct when I heard about the Romney idea was, uh, you know, we need means testing, but you know, that requires setting up a whole bureaucratic system and you're going to want to apply for the money and they're going to vet your application. That's crazy. And it would slow everything down tremendously. Oh, tremendously. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. Let me just uh, add uh, that. It used to be that we could count on people's normal charitable instincts. Um, you know, I always like to remind my friends that uh, before Adam Smith uh, wrote um, Wealth of Nations, um, or at least I don't know if it was before or after, but he wrote a theory of moral sentiments. And he always said that he believed a theory of moral sentiments was his most important book. And uh, what, you know, that really says is that he he talked in that book about uh, basically civil society and the kind of moral foundation that society needs. And it it should be that people would naturally redistribute that wealth um, if, if you've got income, you know, even even if you do it just within your own family, um, parents who uh, are comfortable should, you know, help their struggling children and vice versa. Uh, children should help their struggling parents. And and if we, you know, if we could rely on people and sort of reinvigorate that sense of uh, we're all, you know, we are all in this to help each other, uh, not just to take care of ourselves, that would go a long way. The, the president, uh, after um, two solid months, really, of uh, denying uh, and diminishing the seriousness of the problem, ignoring the problem, trying to talk it down the way he would talk up uh, his, uh, his businesses, um, 
is finally deciding that he's going to be serious and that he's a war president and he's he's doing that gaslighting thing that for me is one of the most maddening aspects of of his tenure namely he's now saying things like i always thought it was a pandemic um <laughs> and um and of course uh he's also trying to do something he, he's he's moving this into his wheelhouse which is he's trying to make this a patriotic war, a great patriotic war um, against China. And he's trying to make the whole question about what you should name the virus a big issue so that his base will say, oh, those politically correct liberals, they don't want to call it the Wuhan virus or the China virus. They're so politically correct. They're on China's side. In fact, one of his fundraising emails even said that uh, Biden is is objectively pro-China. Um, and uh, so, so I'd like to get your comments on that. But also, I, I think this is a moment where people around the world will be evaluating their own government's uh, ability to respond to this. And uh, the case of China is is very complicated because the Chinese, um, you know, behaved in an unbelievably repressive. Well, first bungling fashion. First, they they underestimated the virus. Then they repressed the people who attempted to draw attention to it. In the case of the famous doctor who died, they they um, arrested him uh, for drawing attention to this. Um, their their crackdown was unbelievably draconian, with people being forced to stay in their apartments basically at gunpoint. Um, some people died just because, well, for example, a teenage boy who had cerebral palsy died because his father and his brother were both taken away to quarantine, leaving him alone in his apartment um, and things like that. Um, so that was, that was China's reaction uh, to, the, to the virus. Um, but our own government's reaction was bungling in a, in a different way. Um, and uh, we declined, the, you know, we, we obviously screwed up testing beyond belief, um, <clears throat> declining the test kits that were offered by the World Health Organization. Um, we, uh, we denied, as I said, the, the president and his administration denied the problem and arguably lost critical time. Um, so... Jane, I'll come back to you. Um, what do you make of the political stakes? Um, how successful do you think the president will be in framing this as, first of all, the, of himself as the great war leader now, and uh, and as the the battle really between us and China over over this virus? Well, I think it's worth remembering, and it's funny because of how time passes. That about four days ago. Trump was talking about this as being, you know, largely a hoax and a lot of kind of his main base, you know, led by specific members of the media were kind of following along that path because Trump's main focus throughout has been on what the stock market does. Not not, not so much on public health and I recognize that, you know, Trump does not have to be an epidemiologist. If he were an epidemiologist, this would be a very different problem to solve. Epidemiologists would say, you know, shut everything down. The economy will figure itself out. Trump obviously cannot do that. But I think that the desire to be a wartime president conflicts with his desire to be the person who can stop all threats and he alone can fix it. In a pandemic, no one alone can fix it. There is no, you know, that kind of single-mindedness does not exist in this kind of public health concern, especially because it relies, you know, public health relies on expertise. Uh, public health relies on getting the views of a lot of other people about what to do. And especially in a country um, you know, like the United States, where we have the joys of federalism, public health also is, for me in many instances, largely a state or local-led issue where Trump both needs to sound authoritative, but not too authoritative. And that's a very difficult needle to thread, even for someone who isn't Donald Trump. So I think the, you know, the aim to make it about China is something that he'll continue to do, because I think that he recognizes that that's a, worth, a, a potential distraction for his base. But I also think the veering back and forth between this is a, an unimportant hoax, because 
know, the impact on the stock market is more important. And this is very serious. We need to start sheltering in place and start doing social distancing, which, you know, the guidelines, which he himself was not following until just a day or so ago. I think that that back and forth is very strange to observe. And I also think it's, it's going to be strange for even some of his supporters to follow along with. Um, you know, you've heard from the Washington Post had some reporting on how Trump only started to change his views upon watching an episode of Tucker Carlson's show on Fox News. And only that was something where he was like, okay, I should probably take this seriously. And I recognize, you know, the idea of, again, being a wartime president is extremely attractive, but it is, you know, this isn't a, a war. There isn't a thing you can go out and do. There aren't war bonds you could buy. There isn't a volunteer effort that you could take part in. There isn't a scrap metal yard to contribute to. The best thing to do is to do the opposite of what everyone's instinct is in a crisis. And so I think that that's a particular challenge that, you know, politically is going to be quite problematic for, I think, almost everyone. Linda, um, some of the Trump acolytes were a little late in getting on to when he was zigging versus zagging. (laughs) And so they found themselves left out in the cold, like Devin Nunes, who was following the old Trump line of this is nothing to be concerned about. And he tweeted that everybody should go out to dinner and, and, uh, and socialize. And, uh, and then, uh, sort of Trump had already changed. So Trump said, no, no, he's not for that. Oh, well, Devin, you know, you got to be quicker on the uptake. Let's follow your leader more closely. But anyway, you, you had a point to make. Yeah. Well, you know, one, one of the things I have found fascinating is that, uh, I think that I try not to sound too paranoid here, but, uh, I think one of the, uh, ways in which the president is going to hope to use this crisis is to push what have been his policies with respect to foreigners and immigration uh, in general. It is no accident that uh, when you had uh, the speech uh, last week in the Oval Office and it was um, his uh, top, uh, Stephen Miller, his top immigration advisor who played a role in that, that he referred to this as the foreign virus. Now he's given the virus a nationality, uh, calling it the Chinese virus. And uh, I don't know if you know, people have sort of recognized some of what has been done in terms of immigration policy with respect to this. He basically has shut down all immigration uh, from China for the foreseeable future. The order that he signed says that no aliens, uh, not just people who uh, have been in China, but certainly no Chinese immigrants, uh, will be admitted to the United States uh, until he changes the order. We've now done that with Europeans. Obviously, we've done it with Iranians. We already had in place bans against people coming to the United States uh, from uh, Muslim-majority countries. And in 2019, there was a decrease of net immigration of 70%, which is actually greater than the goal that he had uh, projected uh, early in his administration of cutting net immigration in half. And This is not the first time that disease has been used as a way to sort of whip up xenophobia and to push immigration policy. We saw this uh, with the Chinese Exclusion Act. One of the things that sort of tipped um, the uh, certainly the West Coast uh, over into being uh, even more anti-Chinese laborers than they were was that there was a smallpox uh, epidemic uh, in uh, in San Francisco. And so the state ordered uh, that all Chinese homes be fumigated. It did absolutely nothing to stop the smallpox epidemic, which was mostly among the white population. Uh, But that was just shortly before um, the Chinese Exclusion Act. Uh, Even the, you know, the big 1918 so-called Spanish flu epidemic. It was called the Spanish flu, despite the fact that it probably started in Kansas, uh, not in Spain. And uh, that was in 1918. And it was at a time of very high fear and xenophobia over immigration. And uh, again, fear of disease, fear that foreigners were bringing uh, not just strange new ways, but strange new diseases, uh, 
to the United States uh, help push the country in that direction. So I think that after all said and done, you're going to see, um, again, this administration pushing for draconian measures with respect to immigration, and they will use the kind of unspoken fear that comes up uh, when we see diseases coming from other places because this did start elsewhere and it came here with people. And I think you're going to see the administration exploit that. Yeah, I I worry um, about the potential for um, increased nativism and xenophobia uh, here in this country and also around the world. Um, a pandemic tends to um, exacerbate nationalist and xenophobic feelings among people. There's a tendency to want to pull up the drawbridges and hunker down and blame outsiders. Um, Certainly in the, in the medieval period, we saw that the Jews were frequently targeted uh, as the perpetrators of plagues. In fact, you had, you had popes trying to plead. Well, some of them, some were bad popes, but some of the good popes um, <laughs> tried to plead with people, saying, "Look, the Jews are dying of the plague in equal numbers to us. They're not. They're not creating this." But uh, it didn't. It didn't do much good. Uh, of course, they didn't have much of a platform in those days. Perhaps if, maybe if they had Twitter, it would have been better getting the message out. But but in any event, um, this this kind of attitude, it, it does go along with plagues. And, uh, and so Trump is the worst kind of leader to have at this moment because he tends to want to trade in that even under normal circumstances. And uh, look, I have no sympathy whatsoever. I think I've made that abundantly clear for the Chinese regime, uh, for what it does. Um, but I don't think that it has any capacity. Look, at this time of, of international emergency, we actually need as much cooperation among countries as we can get. If another country is able to, for example, to acquire a vaccine sooner than we, I think we'd all like to be able to benefit from that uh, and vice versa. Um, I think the, uh, you know, the, the idea of choosing this as the moment to uh, to start a an ideological new Cold War with China is, is not advisable. What about you, Bill? I couldn't agree more. Uh, this is not the time to be throwing around phrases like the Wuhan virus, let alone Kung flu. Uh, this is childish, and the situation is much too serious for that sort of thing. Uh, we have already, I think, paid a price for not availing ourselves of progress made in other countries and by international organizations. For example, I think it was a big mistake to turn down testing kits uh, from the World Health Organization and also from the South Koreans who really turned out to excel in that field on the grounds that various regulatory processes mandated by the Food and Drug Administration had not been, uh, had not been followed. Uh, This is not a time for regulatory business as usual. This is an emergency, all hands on deck. We ought to accept assistance from all quarters that can render that assistance in a high quality and reliable way. And similarly, if we are able to help out other countries, uh, then we should do so. So, Damon, the the nationalism worry, uh, what's your perspective on that? Well, I, I do think that um, there is a kind of inevitability to that happening, even without Trump and the other kind of populist nationalist leaders that we now happen to have on the scene that arose actually during a time of relative economic uh, uh, growth. Uh, and I actually, my column uh, for tomorrow morning in the week uh, on Friday is about this very subject. And I, I open by making the point that you know, an open society of free trade, free ideas, and free movement is made possible by peace and prosperity. It's also sustained and encouraged by that. But the suspicion and fear that you get from a viral outbreak uh, leads all kinds of doors to slam shut. In our minds, we get paranoid, scared, because our own lives are at stake. And so the kind of particularism that is always a part of politics, the kind of love of one's own, which is the basis of both 
kind of salutary uh, patriotism as well as a kind of nastier nationalism gets activated. And so there will always be a tendency, and that's what's behind, I think, a lot of what, what Linda uh, went through in discussing the past, past epidemics and uh, the, it's the connections between those kinds of fears and an anti-immigrant backlash. That was always going to be an issue here. But if we had a president who didn't kind of see his own interest as being wrapped up with encouraging that, uh, it would be less likely to become as toxic as it might. So, I, yeah, I'm really concerned about it. Um, although, I, again, we're sort of fighting to some extent, if I may be so bold as to suggest human nature, both epidemics, uh, pandemics and wars, meaning real severe wars, actually, between nations and armies on battlefields, as opposed to pinpoint uh, drone warfare, uh, are always going to encourage those tendencies. And so we need to be on, on guard to not uh, overly encourage them. But I, I don't trust Trump to do that. We have another practical problem staring us in the face that's very, very important, and that is what to do about elections. There are a few primaries still left to go. Arguably, those are not as uh, critical since we know uh, we know how who the Democratic nominee will be. And by the way, Tulsi Gabbard dropped out today, though Bernie Sanders has yet to. Um, <clears throat> But uh, but we have a real question mark about the November election. Uh, what to do? Uh, it seems rather late uh, to to uh, institute a vote by mail system for the entire country. Uh, but um, that's one proposal. Jane, have you given this any thought? Um, I think that voting by mail is a good option. I also think that we've seen a host of states postponed their primaries, as you mentioned. Um, I just think that this is a challenge. Our voting mechanism was already kind of omni-shambles, so to speak, um, you know, outside of certain states where they've already allowed, it, allowed vote by mail, which leads to way higher turnout, as we've seen. I think that it'll be interesting to see how, again, this is going to be kind of an emergency mechanism. But I do think that there will be some sort of, you know, vote by mail or some means of dropping off votes in a means that is that limit that, you know, allows you to continue social distancing. But it is interesting to me how you mean like having drop boxes just around right, at, the is, voting, at the polling places. That's a good right, idea. Which, which is what they uh, suggested doing um, before Ohio, po you know, postponed its primary or sought to postpone its primary until June. That was what um, certain outlets in Illinois and Ohio and Florida were planning to do, or I think for Illinois, that's what they did do, is essentially, you know, you had a drop box outside the polling place. They moved a lot of polling places outside of um, senior citizens' homes, which I think a lot of people were surprised at how many senior citizens' homes were also polling locations, mm. um, which is obviously How do you guard against risk. fraud, though? Hmm. Right. I think, I mean, again, every single one of these suggestions, I can already think of the potential problems. You know, if you don't have a home address, if, you know, this, you know, how is this counting going to work in a lot of these larger states? Um, so I think that there are a lot of ideas for how, what this might look like. But then, I, you know, we can all think of counter arguments just as much as we can think of arguments for each of these proposals. Linda, it strikes me that um, in an era of low trust, low trust in institutions, low trust in the in the legitimacy of our constitutional system, frankly, where there are a lot of progressives who are very distressed about the fact that in the last 25 years, two presidents have been elected without popular vote mandates. Um, and uh, and so with with trust in in the electoral system a little bit shaky um getting this right seems particularly urgent and not to mention some of us think it's kind of an existential question to uh, vote out the current occupant of the of the oval office um so so what do you think about these alternatives and uh, you know are you worried about the vote by mail problems because there are a lot of them well, um, I uh, have 
voted in the state of Colorado uh, when I've been resident there, and it is an entirely 100% vote-by-mail system. But voting right, by mail... Right, but they mail, had a long time to set it up. Well, I know. And so what I was going to suggest is that we can't wait on this. Um, and I think that you're right. I think the likelihood that we're going to be able to all be turning out to polling places in November may be very optimistic. And if we're going to do something about this, it's got to start now. And as you know, these are all state laws and state systems that establish, you know, how people uh, vote. And so states have got to begin doing it. And I would hope that many more states are going to be looking at the vote by mail option. And it doesn't mean putting your ballot in the mail necessarily. I would always fill out my ballot and then go to the polling place and drop it in uh, the box. And, and you could certainly do that. And in fact, on election day, they would have people outside and uh, you would drive up by car and drop your ballots in. And yeah, is it uh, is it possible there's more fraud with that? There certainly is. Uh, but at this point, uh, it's either that or we would delay the election. And I think that would be an absolute crisis. We would lose all confidence uh, in our democratic system if the November election were postponed. I frankly wish they hadn't uh, done it in uh, Ohio. Uh, I, I just think that postponing elections is dangerous without a lot of advance warning. Uh, and I, you know, I, I think we've got to be planning now, and I think we ought to be looking at states adopting vote by mail, if if only for this one time. Um, and um, if we don't begin now, it's certainly not going to happen by November. Damon, um, from what I've been able to discover, one of the things that the vote by mail states do now is they issue each voter a ballot with their own barcode on it so that that guards against fraud. Um, that can be done, but it has to be done they have to get started really quickly, right? Yeah, well, uh, you would with a system like that, and and then coordinating that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a mind-boggling task for uh, seven to eight months to try to get that to work. And and note, while we're all under kind of quarantine, <laughs> it's not. Right, you know, it's right. one thing to say this would be hard to set up in in six to eight months in normal times, but right. a lot of people aren't at work. They're remote working and trying to, yeah. you know, all these Jimmy rigged systems where they're, they're doing things like recording this podcast remotely with everyone. Um, yeah. So it's, it sort of boggles the mind and it does worry me. I mean, I have a lot of sympathy for Mike DeWine's situation, the governor in, in Ohio who made this tough call the other night by canceling the election after a judge said he couldn't cancel the election. Um, you know, uh, I, I think I don't know if that was the right call, but it does really hand Trump a kind of precedent of not only can Trump now try to do something similar if we're in a still in a bad, you know, the timing also isn't good because it's possible the virus could recede over the summer months and then start coming roaring back in October as temperatures drop. So uh, that would not be at all unusual in the scheme of these things. The Spanish flu came back in waves and actually the second wave was much worse than the first one so that could set up a situation where he says look it's it's in the interest of the american people to suspend the election for now and then even if a judge comes back and says he can't do it he could say well mike dewine overrode the judge for the sake of public health i'm your great leader and this is what we have to do and, of course, the capacity of the American people to protest, this would also be hampered by the fact that we're all living under quarantine. Right. Um, so it, it's a it's a kind of it's a very distressing possibility and, frankly, a much more realistic one uh, that could be very dangerous for American democracy than a lot of kind of nightmare scenarios that have been. Uh, jostling around the kind of the uh, the never Trump and progressive mind for the last three years, because now we have this external shock that has changed the parameters of normal politics in a way that we didn't anticipate. So, uh, yeah, we have to stay on top of it and try to figure it out quickly. All right. Um, here with a modest proposal, uh, with apologies to Jonathan Swift. Um I think the my my cursory examination of the 
vote by mail systems. And in light of all the things that we've all said about the difficulty of instituting that on a crash basis would be possibly insurmountable. Um, uh, how about an idea where instead of voting on one day in November, we vote over the course of a week? And that way, people can practice some degree of social distancing, showing up sort of alphabetically. You'd be assigned in your voting district to come on particular days and hours based on your last name. And that way, there wouldn't be crowds at the polling booths and uh, people could still vote the old-fashioned way. Sounds good to me. Okay. I may write this up as a column. (laughs) (laughs) I think you should. All right. Um, Let us now, uh, if we can, just just mention something positive that you think has come out of this. I mean, it's been pretty grim and very, very worrying for all of us. Um, So I'd just like everybody to give just one quick example, if you could, of something that you saw that made you smile or made you think this is this is a positive thing. Linda? Well, um, I guess the positive thing in my household has been that I've been cooking three meals a day, (laughs) 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 which has been a long time uh, since I've been doing that. But um, the other thing that's sort of been positive is is with more time, uh, basically, you're not running around, you're not, you know, occupying your time in the car, etc., um, is getting good reading done. And I have a recommendation for our listeners, uh, and it's very much related uh, to this topic, and that is that if you haven't read Boccaccio's uh, The Decameron, now is the time mm. to do it. Uh, Boccaccio wrote this um, in uh, the Middle Ages, right during the time of plague, and The Decameron uh, is about uh, 10 noble people who are fleeing Florence, which has been stricken by the plague, and they gather uh, in a castle-like environment, and uh, each of them gets to be king for a day, or queen, um, and they sit around and they tell stories. And so the Decameron is basically made up of a 100 stories uh, over 10 days of all of these individuals, and some of them are raucously funny, even uh, though the circumstances that led to it were very dire. So I recommend getting a copy of the Decameron. You could probably still get it from Amazon, uh, and you can listen to it uh, on audiobooks as well, and that's how you should be spending your time. Excellent. And you probably don't have to pay very much for it because uh, it's it's out of, out of copyright. Uh, out of copyright. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jane. Uh, I would say that it's been a good time to um, really think about what we value most. Um, it's been interesting to see how many times I've been having FaceTime conversations with friends or j- daily chats. And it's an interesting way of finding community um, when you can't actually commune. And I found that some, in some ways very heartening. You know, this is an extremely scary time, especially because of the you know, yawning foreboding ahead of us. But I also am hopeful that in some ways you, we can find ways to get through these moments together, even though we're not you know, really allowed to be together. And I think that, that that's been something I've learned. And also, you know, having the time to foster, you know, we're fostering, as I said, two puppies who are already on quarantine because they haven't yet had all their shots. They're too little. So it's not like they could leave the house either. Which has actually been really nice because, and also, you know, if you're a puppy, your life is very full. They lead very admirable lifestyles. <laughs> yes, uh, um, and uh, that that combination of breeds sounds absolutely wonderful to me. And if I didn't already have a rescue dog, I'd seriously consider one of those if they were uh, on offer. But anyway, um, okay, uh, Damon. Uh, I guess I will refer to um, uh, I forget what the exact technical name is for this, but the the ability of services that you use in your life to automatically deduct their charge from your credit your credit card or your debit card checking account. Um, that is what I'm grateful for because. I am lucky enough, at least so far, to have not lost either of my jobs. 
Um, <laughs> so I'm doing fine for the moment, thank goodness. Um, but a lot of people uh, in our lives are not doing as well. Uh, especially service workers and so forth. So because of the automatic deduction, uh, I, I, it is the easiest thing in the world. And I implore any listener who is, a, is in a similar situation to simply let them go and keep paying for things that you're not using. So the gym, uh, the people who, uh, you know, come tidy up around the house a couple times a month, um, and, and other, other services that we use. Uh, it's just, a, a very easy way to, uh, I'll hopefully soften that blow for people who otherwise would just be, uh, you know, plain out of work right now because people aren't, uh, aren't doing the usual things. The gym is closed and, uh, the, the, the house cleaners are getting turned away, uh, from their jobs, but they still have to survive. So it, it makes it very easy. And, uh, it's something I'm certainly happy to do. And I, I trust many people will be as well. Yes, me me too. Agreed. Um, I just thought I would mention, um, not a big deal, but it was a, a nice thing that uh, in France, uh, this big consortium of uh, perfumer uh, perfume perfume manufacturers, including Dior and Givenchy, have teamed up and said they are turning over their factories to the production of hand sanitizer, which they will donate to the Ministry of Health. Um, and, uh, I thought, well, that's the spirit and, uh, we, we need a lot like that. Um, okay. Final segment is, uh, as usual, I, it'd be nice to have stopped right there because that's a nice note, but, uh, but we do still have our final segment. I have to confess my own is not very positive, but, um, you know, I, I, it's, it's really not very scintillating, uh, but um, I I appreciate uh, the New York Times because they have made uh, all coronavirus stories available to the public, and I just I wanted to single them out for really really first rate coverage of this. We all have to remember, as I indicated in a in one of my remarks earlier in the show uh, about voting, uh, that you know we have to remember everybody in the country is dealing with the same thing, and that includes the 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 uh, reporters, the editors, the people actually putting out stuff every day. And uh, the fact that the Times puts out what it does every day, despite the fact that everyone working there is is working from home and struggling and having, you know, distracting kids running around while they're doing their jobs uh, is a great public service. And, you know, we might get irritated at the media for its blind spots and exaggerations at times, but I don't know where we would be without them. And the Times has really been doing exemplary work. So uh, I will give a, a broad uh, bravo to them. Okay, Jane. Um, well, I'm interested in how this back and forth uh, among conservatives and kind of libertarian-leaning conservatives and populist-leaning conservatives about the best way to deal with um, you know, coronavirus moving forward is, is shaping up. And so I'd recommend the work of Reason Magazine, they're a libertarian publication. And it's been fascinating to kind of see how they, how they correspond and how they differ from other conservative um, writings. Um, well, actually, many of the people at Reason would never call themselves conservatives and do not think of themselves as being conservative. No. But I do think that back and forth, and specifically on, you know, the role of government, even in a crisis, um, you know, there was a piece in the Atlantic, I think there was like, there are no libertarians in a pandemic. And the reason responded, there are only libertarians in a pandemic. And I find that back and forth really interesting. So I recommend folks uh, read some of those pieces. Excellent. Linda. Well, I'm finally uh, back. And here is my recommendation. I would also give kudos to the Washington Post, the New York Times and other publications that are putting all of their coronavirus coverage uh, in front of the paywall so you don't have to be a subscriber. And I'm going to recommend something very practical. Uh, in today's at least mobile edition of the New York Times, there's a, a video by Tara Parker Pope, and she uh, shows how it is we need to clean during a viral outbreak. And she's got an actual demonstration with showing not only how to wash your hands, but what areas in your home uh, need to be cleaned and how to go about cleaning them. So I recommend everybody take a look at that. Excellent. I, as a clean freak, I cannot resist. I will, I will do that right away. 
Um, okay, mine uh, has to do well. Okay, this week I tuned in to Fox News, which I don't customarily watch because it's well, for obvious reasons. But I wanted to see how they were, how their their pivot away from denial to covering this uh, virus had gone. And um, Charles Hurt, who is with the Washington Times, made a comment that I just thought was so ill-advised. He said that uh, it was a great sign of the strength of the American people that people are running out to buy guns. Okay. He said, this is evidence that they want to take care of themselves and their families, and that's a great thing. And I just think that's so wrong. Look, I, I understand that lots of people own guns and like owning guns and so forth. That's not the matter here. What the, the issue here is panic buying at a time of crisis. And it does not betray a, a wonderful, wholesome frontier desire to protect yourself and your family. It reflects just base fear, fear of looting, fear of disorder, fear, you know, of, of all of the, you know, possible um, chaos that a pandemic might bring. Um, and it's, it's not a good reaction. It's not something that we should give into. We should try our best to pull together, to support one another, to rely upon those other instincts that are also part of the human breast at times of crisis, which is to be helpful and to be cooperative. And uh, let's not valorize gun buying. Okay. Um, that's it for us this week. I thank you all for participating. I apologize for our technical challenges, but I think everybody listening can understand that we're uh, operating a, at a disadvantage uh, because of distance. But uh, thank you all so much for your excellent thoughts. And uh, Jane, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. And, thanks uh, for having me. I, I hope this will be uh, less dire than, than we fear. <laughs> and we will be back next week.